there, and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name's Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down with Dr. Anna Hampton, discussing her book and her research, Facing Danger, A Guide Through Risk. I think it's a discussion at a pertinent time and the world we live in today. And uh, Anna has academic experience. Obviously, she's got her doctorate, and she's researched this specific area. And then the other thing is she has great practical experience of living in some very hostile environments with her family. And we have discussions about what it is and how to make decisions when you have a family, how to look at the the whole gospel rather than at times when an organization comes up with a theology, a risk, it, it can maybe cherry pick or highlight certain scriptures, but not look at the entirety of the gospel. She shares um, what it looks like for an organization to develop a theology of risk and the importance of having a diverse group at the table when decisions are made rather than just an, a certain um group represented that you don't get a wide or a depth of a decision making when decision making process when you're when you're walking through a time and so just a uh, valuable conversation with her i appreciate her wisdom her insight and her experience um the questions kept coming so this is probably i think the first episode out of all the ones that we've done on this podcast that I we re we continued recording um, after I asked her to pray. Normally at the at the prayer, that's when we close the podcast out. But I just continued to have questions for her, and so we let the the recording continue to go. And um, she answers another question on on the practicalities of coming up with a, a theology of risk, and then making that aware and available. I think that's one thing that I found a lot of organizations might have a theology of risk, but a lot of the workers don't know where to locate it, don't know it exists, they don't know how to access it, and at the same time, they don't know necessarily what it says. And so she shares some practical wisdom on what that would look like and how to develop what develop one of those. Do want to ask you to continue sending your questions for Back Channel with Foth. That's where we sit down with Dick Foth as he answers listeners' questions. Just a valuable time. Um, any of you that had listened in the past know that Dick is is full of wisdom, and um, we curate the questions you send in. My, my emails at the end of the the podcast in the show notes and um, you can send them to me i curate those try to make them correspond to the episode and the, the subject the matter of the episode and just always fun to learn from him well there's no time better than now to get started so here we go Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. I'm so excited to be here with a new friend. Um, I've read her book and read her book. And then, so I feel like I know her, but this is the first time I've seen her on Zoom. So Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Anna, would you go ahead and just share a little bit about yourself before we jump in to some of the questions? I, I got a long list of questions here for you, but it'd be good to hear a little bit about you. Sure. Well, I'm a farm girl from Minnesota. So sometimes I'd be walking down the heavily fortified city of cobble streets and I'd be, what's a farm girl like me doing <laughs> in a place like this? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And married, have kids? Yes, I'm married to Neil. I have three adult children and one of them is married. So I have a daughter-in-law yeah. and that's great. And Good deal. Potentially more spouses coming. <laughs> All right. Well, and from Minnesota, favorite sports team in Minnesota or not so much into sports? Well, that really fits the topic for today because we <laughs> raised our children to have a theology of suffering since we are oh. Minnesota Vikings fans. Oh, 
<laughs> and my connection to the there's always a West Virginia connection. I'm from West Virginia, and Randy Moss. Randy Moss was he played for the Vikings, and he was from the great state of West Virginia. And so that's my I did root for the Minnesota Vikings for a time um, when he was playing there, but and that that kind of ended when he quit playing for him. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so today we're going to talk about um, your your book and your study your passion facing danger a guide through risk um can you just share a little bit about what has sparked this passion and this interest in a biblical understanding of risk yeah well i would i think most of us don't um you know grow up thinking we want to be risk experts and certainly <laughs> that um i i still sometimes find it interesting where i'm at in the world um because i'm a, a woman's voice speaking into what's predominantly a men's world on security and risk. Um, but when we went to Afghanistan, Neil and I, we had a theology of suffering. We knew mm -hmm. we would suffer. Um, that's not unreasonable to think in going to a dangerous place like that. But what we didn't have was a theology of risk. And in our early 30s, maybe 10 years before we anticipated him being in leadership of a very large program for the organization we were with and responsible for 50 adults, 50 children, 100 Afghan staff. It was a very large program. We had to learn very quickly how to make decisions under high risk and severe stress. Hmm. And there, we found very little help um, in how to think through from a theological perspective, how to think through the risk decisions we were making. Hmm. And at the same time, I was working on my doctorate in biblical studies, and as we struggled through this, I, I decided uh, after doing the research, which didn't take long because there was there's hardly anything out there in the um, the <laughs> academic research, that I would write a dissertation on a theology of risk, and that was of high interest. It's it's a field driven problem, mm -hmm. theology of risk. Mm -hmm. I do not feel that the Western church has yet caught up to that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still not a valuable topic yet, which is why I think there's very little research being done in the seminaries uh, and in the churches. Yeah. So, but it's a, it's been a huge topic on the mission field for the last 30 years. And yeah. so my dissertation was to contribute to that. There was a lot of interest. And so I quickly knew that I needed to take it out of the boring academic kind of yeah. field and write a book that was accessible to people around the world because yeah. of the 450,000 workers approximately yeah. that are around the world. Uh, we know that 70% are the global South. And yeah. so way more of those workers than Western workers. So I tried to write facing danger with a global perspective as much sure. as possible. Sure. And um, so the disparity between field and I think you said West um, is that just because the West doesn't see it as a need or what do you think, or the people on the ground there, they get there and then realize, wow, this, I should have thought a lot about this before I got here. Or what do you think the disparities there? Well, I mean, I, I actually, I actually personally think it's a disparity between any non-suffering church, not just the Western okay. church and the okay. field, but yeah. I'm an American. So I, I really yeah. only want to criticize us. That's, I, I agree. <laughs> you know? I agree. I agree. Stay where we're, I can criticize West Virginia because I'm from there. So right. I understand completely. Right. So I, that's what I know. And so we know that the American church is not a suffering church, despite what they may think or feel. 
Um, and because they don't face the same kind of daily life and death decisions that many do in dangerous areas. Hmm. So there's not this felt need, nor is there an understanding. And there's a lot of bad theology and misconceptions about risk. Wow. That's yeah, that's what I that's think. Good. Yeah. So you've talked about risk. Um, you said you had a theology of suffering when you when you got to the field. You had thought a lot about that. Could you just share the difference between this risk and suffering and uh, for, for, for us? Yeah. Um, so theology of suffering, like all all believers, all people suffer, really. Yeah. Right. Um, and all are called to risk. All Christ followers are called to risk and be willing to risk their lives. Mm -hmm. In a conceptual way, we are called to risk in the big conceptual way. But specifically, very few of us are called to martyrdom, for example. Most of us survive these dangerous situations. Few are called to give their lives. So when we kind of take a step back from martyrdom and we talk about living through risk, it's much harder to live in a godly way with joy through long periods of risk. And few are called to do that because most, um, most are, well, even now we know that less than 5% of the global work workers are focused on unreached, unengaged places. Right. And we, so I don't want to argue with people's calling, except for I do invite more people to be called to accept the call to these harder areas. So the majority seem to be called to evangelize or easier places. Yeah. And so that, so suffering is something we all um, are, we all called to, and then the risk is that. Is, am I hearing you correct? We're all called to suffer, but we're just trying to figure out the risk. We're risk adverse, so we go to places that would be easier. Is that would that be correct? Sort of. I want to still nuance what you said. I think yeah. all believers suffer. We yeah. all suffer. It doesn't matter where we are. Yeah. But not all are called to risk, and I don't want to so simply say people who are risk averse go to the easy places because God's call is there. I don't yeah. want to, yeah, yeah. Um, good. you know, God, God calls people, but we are not all called to the dangerous areas and yeah. we are not all called even in Afghanistan. There was things I didn't feel called to go do that were more risky than other things, you yeah, know? And so sense. pray prayerfully every day, what does he want me to do? And because I feel like sometimes as a Westerner, Um, people from non-Western nations automatically will hear money involved in thinking Mm. about risk mitigation. And Mm. and I say, no, risk is about listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying him. So if there's like a Chinese church pastor, house pastor, say going, walking to wherever the house church is for the day and listening to the Lord, if he wants you to turn left to go to the church, or if he wants you to actually turn right go away from where the police are because he wants you to live another day outside of jail. Right. Hmm. And so this is all about what risk is he inviting me into today specifically? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. That takes um, my, my thought would be that takes a mature level of faith um, to be sensitive, to hear God's voice. And so somebody, I guess my experience, so we've been overseas for 22 years, Sometimes people come to the field um, and their faith has not matured in such a way that they're hearing God's voice. So is that is that something you can grow in in hearing God's voice and when you're walking through risk or, or is that mm-hmm. incorrect assumptions on my part? No, absolutely. I, we don't want to um, 
people who are new and young in their faith are on the field. They're like, how can I have faith like that? Right. Yeah, but he doesn't yeah. invite us into that big faith. It's a slow yeah. daily faithfulness, step-by-step step, obeying and listening. I would agree, Aaron, we spend a lot of our time with workers, helping them learn and see how did they hear God's voice. It's different for everybody because it's a relationship and he right. interacts with us. We can make some generalizations, of course, but it takes, as you said, maturity, and that requires discipleship. So we still need life-on-life discipleship to mentor younger people to hear, younger in their faith, people yes. to hear um, yeah. from the Lord. And like, yes, that's the Lord. Yeah. And so I probably, the majority, more than 50% of my conversations with people, and especially even in risk, is related to how are you hearing God's voice hmm. in that that's situation. Good. Good word. Good word. You you discuss mature courage and courageous retreat versus cowardly retreat. Um, could you just unpack that for us? Yep. <laughs> well, actually, you should know I'm writing the sequel book, which is all about that. <laughs> oh, is it? I didn't know. So we hopefully you'll agree to come back and we can talk about the sequel, too. Yeah. Right now, the title, the working title I have is um, Facing Fear. The journey to mature courage in risk and persecution. Wow. So, and uh, I don't know, it might end up being bigger, but partially because I don't want to write another book on this topic. So I'm trying to get it all in there. Um, there's a lot that I didn't cover. So yeah. um, I didn't know that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know I was going to write a second book. But anyways, okay, so you can edit that out if you'd like to. No, it's good. It's a transparent <laughs> conversation. I like that. I like the, the back and forth. It's good. Um, so... The first thing we have to think about whether, so let me even back up before that. Um, our theology about cur courage and uh, fear or cowardice is really based on a Plato, Aristotle, Greco-Roman view. Okay. And so to go back 3,000 years, Plato taught and Aristotle continued that thinking of um, courage is when we, when a, when a man dies in a forward position, attacking position in battle. Okay. okay. So that's what courage is. So how much has our modern 21st century theology been impacted by even ancient Greco-Roman definitions of courage? And so that is part of what I'm writing in this book that I think a lot of it is. Reason is, and I talk about origin and Thomas Aquinas, and then I cite sermons from the middle of the pandemic in 2020 from Sermon Central, um, that really courage is when we die as a martyr for Jesus Christ. So that's kind of that forward position in battle. And courage is not defined by those of us who were faithful day in and day out in high risk and low risk. That's not elevated as courage in the church, right? And certainly not if we pull out of a risky situation. That's considered cowardly, right? Yeah. So we know that both Jesus and Paul, we're just going to cite the early church. There's many, but let's just focus on the early church since we're in the church age. Jesus and Paul both retreated from risk. For sure. In obedience to the Father, until the time that he called them to go and die, right? And Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, right? And Paul did the same thing. So um, people do leave out of fear, maybe when they shouldn't, but not always. It's yeah. There's wisdom and stewardship in discerning when should I 
stay? Yeah. And when should I leave? But it's really hard to leave because the church does not elevate <laughs> obedience and they describe that as cowardice. So we want to be careful what we're labeling what yeah. is part of my challenge in this next book. No, and that, that's, as you said, we're asking, we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And uh, in my years in, in, in the work that we do, um, when people would hear to step out for a time that was met with a certain level of, but the Holy Spirit would never have asked you to do that. Or, but the people who stayed, they were, it was. And so honestly, as a, we left, we evacuated Madagascar once or twice, once and twice for coups. And, you know, we stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed. And it came to a point where the the national workers we were there serving with said, we'd really appreciate you going um, because you're, it, we're, this is, you're not doing anything because of what's going on. And it would just help us if you would kind of step out. And it was somewhat, uh, you know, for me, it was a pride thing that I wanted to stay. And it was more, it wasn't, as you said, I wasn't necessarily asking the Holy Spirit. I just was going to stay no matter what. I told my wife, she packed a go bag early on. I said, we'll never use that. We'll never leave. Blah, blah, blah. But once we, I laid down my pride and actually asked, you know, we had a piece about stepping out. So it is so much working in that because people on the outside would have looked and said, well, Aaron, you stayed when you were courageous. I don't know if I stayed was, it was courage. I think it was a lot more pride than it was courage and, and, and asking Holy Spirit. So anyway, sorry to talk, but it was just, no, uh, that, that just made very much sense um, as I thought about it in my life. So I love it. your, yeah, I love your authenticity. And that's what we need more of is what is motivating us. And who cares what people back home say? Yeah. We want to obey the Father. And that's how he's measuring us, yeah. is our obedience and faithfulness. That's what brings him delight. Yeah, very good word. Um, one, you shared about this idea of a, a cerebral understanding and then a, um, an actual, actual understanding. And so I think that was another thing for me. It was an idea when we went to Burkina Faso. You know, I, I had lots of ideas, a cerebral understanding of suffering or, or risk. But then when you're actually there, it's, it's different, right? At least it was for me. So I'll be honest. And um, so how do we move from the cerebral understanding of these things to actually practical understanding and some wit? Do you have any wisdom for us on that and how we can train workers better to move from just a cerebral to practical? You know, I, I don't have all the answers. Um, I, I get asked questions about, you know, how do we implement this pre-field yeah. and all of that? And, and you and I know that we all have these preconceived notions <laughs> and then we go to the field Wow! <laughs> in our true. first six to 12 months and like everything uh, is flipped on its head. Um, so true. I, I don't have all the answers. What I would say is increasingly I spend more and more time on, you know, helping people think through their thinking and become yeah. aware of their biases. And if yeah. there's any way we can help people in their pre-field be aware that, yes, we should have some convictions. We should have a statement of our theology of risk and suffering, yeah. but also be aware that God's going to change and mold us a lot, especially mm -hmm. in the first term, couple terms. Yeah. And to be open, um, but it's really hard to do. And I, I just always want to encourage veterans to be gracious to the young, younger ones that are yeah. new, yeah. because we all God was merciful to us as we continue yeah. to grow. And how many, you know, we look back and we can point out the mistakes we made or where what we would do differently if yeah. if we knew then what we knew now. And we're all on that journey. So 
I, I would say, um, as much as possible, like we teach in our two day Ram training, we teach eight significant biases that we hold and, but we, we hold maybe one or two of those more than the others. Right. Hmm, And I, I think I've actually added a couple of, a couple of more biases in, in the second book now, um, none of these biases are in the first book, but we do it in the training and then I'm putting them all in the second book. So people can see that there if they haven't taken the Ram training. Um, so becoming aware of your biases and what yeah. your tendencies are. And I, I definitely encourage even pre-field to look at the risk myths, uh, okay. that's in chapter 10 of facing yeah. danger. And if you haven't looked at the website, there's two more. Cause I found out I missed two. <laughs> <laughs> Ram, before we move on, Ram, could you just share that for the audience just so if they they don't know what Ram is? Yep. I apologize for using an acronym. No, no, you're good. good. Risk assessment and management training. Okay. So this is like a theology of risk training and it does not replace practical security training, which I do advocate for anybody going to, well, all the places that you've right. mentioned that you've been in, right. um, certainly the places in Central Asia, Middle East, it would be good to have practical security training. Yeah. But security training is just one of three different uh, areas of preparation in the area of risk. And so mm-hmm. a theology of risk is important, understanding people care. Um, and so this two-day training kind of tries to hit the middle to help people discern what is it that they need to add to their okay. preparation. Right. Sure. And so that's where we are. We really give an undergirding of theology to all of that oh, in our okay. training. That's, and then we can, if we have links, we can put that in the show notes for those that sure. are interested in taking the training and um, be very, very, very valuable. Um, you, one thing I noticed in the book and read and highlighted, you said that you see that people are coming to the field, maybe a little more bruised um, and a little softer than they were in the past. And um uh, you know, I, I remember being in Burkina Faso and one of the missionaries was there and he said, you know, he said, when I just didn't want to get back on the boat and go home, he said, you know, your problem is you can get on a plane and fly and you can be back in Wallyford, West Virginia in 16 hours. He said, but, you know, I knew I was gonna have to get on a boat and it was going to take me, you know, days. And he said, I just didn't want to do it. So in what areas are you seeing that we're a little more soft and maybe a little more bruised? And um, how does that impact us as we're trying to plant the church? Yeah. Well, I mean, some of that, I, I had a reaction to a criticism from a missions pastor who is like, you know, why can't these workers stay and just really criticizing. Mm. But the fact is, is we send out who we are. And so to criticize workers being sent out from a risk adverse church that has the same divorce rate as the secular world. And then we can start talking about the abuse statistics of men against women and marriages, yeah. evangelical marriages. We can talk about um, just a plethora of yeah. evils within Western society. Again, I'm going to just talk about my own culture. Um, and that's what we're sending out. And my husband and I went to the field kind of with the older generation mindset that you need to, you need to be at a certain level of, you know, trauma recovery. And I still do agree with that. It's just that it's shifted a little bit. Um, Some things we can continue to work on on the field, but some traumas are too big Hmm. and they're too distracting to the work or they're too damaging to other relationships. And they do need, we we do have to have people go through some therapy and healing before they go to the field. But I, I guess we've recalibrated a little bit 
um, you still want people of mental toughness and resiliency in the hard places. Hmm. And I would put Turkey in that. The reason hmm. is I, the reason why I bring up Turkey is because many mission organizations have viewed Turkey as Islam light, that it's an easy field. And when I interviewed a bunch of regional managers um, from all the major sending organizations from America uh, in 2012, they said, this is our highest turnover country. We have better, um, you know, people staying through their terms in Afghanistan than we do in Turkey. And so Hmm. people need to be prepared for these hard countries, for Islamic countries. Um, But but some of that discipleship can occur on the field and should occur. Like if we've got new young married parents on the field, they're going to need help with marriage and parenting, especially since we have such this high divorce rate and they haven't seen that. And now they're trying to do family on the field. Right. Yes. And so we want to, we want to come alongside them as best we can. And that also, you know, I, walking with people through time. So we, we went to the field our daughter was three months old. Um, we had been married uh, three years and man, it was learning to be a husband, learning to be a father and all that at one time. And, yep. and, uh, Burkina was, I would say you is used the term Islam light. Um, at the time that we lived in Burkina, it probably would have been seen that, um, it was not as, it is not as, the same as it is today. Today, it is, it is a little more hostile mm-hmm. and a little more aggressive yeah. than it was when we lived there. But at the same time, it was a lot to process and uh, yeah. and to be a young family walking through that. And uh, yeah, just a different different time. You share yeah. four broad questions about cross-cultural risk. Um, we can't cover them all. Um, but can you share about how we understand stewardship and the Holy Spirit's leading in risk? Yeah, sure. That as I, I try to observe myself and I, I see, I filter many, many, many things through stewardship. And I think that's not how a lot of people think um, because we are, tr- we are brought up in an uh, American church culture that stewardship is money and talents, right? That's, it's hmm. kind of that, that's what the sermons are. Uh, okay. I've been in the church my whole life. And so oftentimes when we teach on stewardship and risk, it, it seems to take people by surprise and but workers like like yourself who've been in this for so long, you know that we're stewarding our time, we're stewarding our resources, we're stewarding our what's our culture margin for the day? Like how much energy do I have to go and deal with a challenging culture? Um, it, we know that it takes seven to ten years to get comfortable in a language and not feel that um, emotional uh, physical drain when you have yeah. to speak all day in another language. That's that's kind of normal average. Right. Some people might be faster than that curve than others. Um, so. So we have to steward all sorts of things on the field and especially in risk. And the Mm. mistake that is made is here's a worker that's doing their work, doing their ministry, whatever it is. And all of a sudden the situation changes. Okay. Elections are looming and there's unrest in the city. And now we're having to begin to do some risk thinking assessment, some risk mitigation, and we're adding a layer to what we're already doing. And instead of maybe decreasing something, we're doing more, right? And so we're not really stewarding everything. And then we feel stress. We're concerned. We might have fears we have to process, whether we want to use the word emotion, the emotion word fear, or the impact of our concerns, (laughs) okay? Um, And so all of that is a drain. So let's use a specific example right now with COVID. Um, Some people when COVID hit, they felt it as a major fear, a major concern. It was a big risk. 
maybe they were out because there were people in Africa consulting with us. They were out in a village. It was a four hour drive to the city and there was four um, ICU beds in the city. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's a major concern, especially if you have some of the risk factors for COVID. Right. Some of us, I'll just describe myself. For me, it was like a low grade fever fear. It It was a thing. But it was just, I can keep doing life, you know, but it's a thing. It is an energy drain. And I have to allow for that in my daily life. Hmm. And so this is all part of stewardship so that we can stay in the situation, assuming he's called us into it and continue to serve him well. And, Hmm. but we can't do it all. We can't do everything we were doing before the risk situation. I don't know if that brings up some more questions for you, but. So how do you how do you decide? I guess the question is with all the things you're doing, the things that you described the adding layers on, is that something you ask the Holy spirit to give you guidance and direction? And I think I'll speak for me. Um, uh, a lot of my pride or whatever the right term would be is, is the things I accomplish and the things I do. And I know that's not my value in his eyes, but it's uh, a tendency that I have. So somebody like me that has that tendency, how do they come to terms that with, yes, I am stewarding this, even though I'm doing less in the face of the circumstances. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, it does. I, um, you know, the enemy, if he wants to distract us or if he wants to do damage, most of us, he's, it's not going to be a big temptation. It's a distraction to doing good hmm. that keeps us so busy. We're not paying attention to what God actually wants us to do. Well, that's good. And, when things get more dangerous, when there's higher risk, people are watching and well, people are watching way more than we realize anyways. But when they know that we could leave, that things are beginning to get dangerous. And this, I'm, again, I'm only going to speak about the right. Americans. The state department is telling you, you should leave, which they say pr- pretty much all the time everywhere. You should yeah. leave, you know, level COVID is, they got everything at level four for COVID. So it, you really, Personally, well, this is another issue. We shouldn't pay attention to the State (laughs) Department. Um, There's ways to pay attention. Um, Only when there's a minor word change do we we pay attention. Because otherwise, it's the same message all the time. You should leave, right? So to come back to your question. um, Wait, what was your question? My question is, how do we decipher? Oh, how do we discern? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we know that the enemy wants to keep us very busy. Number one, that's so there's a spiritual war going on that's very subtle for those of us who are being faithful. And number two, we know our own ego and identity, which you just said, which is common. We and and the church puts the church, the mission organizations, they want Western church metrics for success. Right. So there's a pressure from people back home as well, outside of our identity to produce something. And so in all of that, what is the Lord saying? And sometimes it might be just to sit Hmm. and reflect. And what we discovered when my husband pulled back, we had um, 75% of our people leave and he, and he started to evaluate. So that took time to sit and think, what is it that we're doing and where is God inviting us? And he discovered that we needed to flip 80% of our efforts to do something else Hmm. that was way more significant. Hmm. And so it really can be very effective to sit and think, what am I doing and what is God actually calling me to do? And it will look less productive to people back home and to myself, but I'm being obedient to him. So here's why it's missional. Because 
we saw almost no fruit in our first five years in Afghanistan. And then as things got more dangerous, but as we began to focus on helping the community be more, um, what's a good word? Well, work through conflicts, right. Be learn how to be practically loving. So we yeah. were doing things like sharpening your interpersonal skills workshop. You know, we were bringing, uh, when I say we, it was a group effort. Right. It wasn't right. just my husband and me. It was cross-agency. We were bringing in help for, you know, marriage, like marriage conference type weekends. Yeah. And we were doing bringing in TCK specialists to help parents. And we were doing all sorts of things to help the community learn how to love each other better. Yeah. And then when 75% of the community left because things had gotten really dangerous in 2008, all of a sudden we started having more decisions of mm. people for eternity with Christ mm. at the pain of death or for sure, ostr yeah. you know, being ostracized from their family. And we said, well, why are you making these decisions? And we began to interview all of these local people. And they said, well, when we saw how the foreigners were treating each other, those hmm. of you who stayed. Hmm. And so it's very missional. We want to be very thoughtful about what we're doing and how we're interacting with each other. Because as Jesus taught us, they will know you're my disciples by how you love one another one. and how you love through these dangerous situations specifically. Good word. Good word. You talk about, and I appreciate your candidness and openness about being a mother on the, on the field and the tension of protection of your children and, and trusting God. Um, could you provide maybe some encouragement for fathers and mothers um, listening to this and maybe grappling with uh, very similar feelings? Yeah, this is a really hard one. The thing is, is that, when we go to the field, um, we, we do need to accept the fact that it will cause pain to our spouse and to our children. Um, there's pain and suffering, and there's no way around it. Um, it will happen when they're now, when they're young, it'll happen later. Um, and we're, you know, we're still walking through this with our adult children. Um, so first off is just accepting the fact that they will suffer and hmm. our calling, our calling is part of why they're suffering. And that is a hmm. hard reality to name and accept. Hmm. And of course, as, as you know, there's many, many good things about raising kids on the field. Um, but I agree. The children of workers are, they have targets on them. The enemy is not a gentleman. He attacks women and children first, usually. And mm -hmm. the, the husbands and the fathers have to see that and um, support that. But it's, it's very hard. Uh, I haven't had that conversation with my husband because the burden that a, a husband and a father feels is a heavy burden. Hmm. Um, and I, I know what my burden is as a mother, right, for my hmm. calling, and I would also have to say, and this is very painful, is um, I've been in full-time ministry now um, almost 30 years, and I'm still finding out what the cost of the call is as a, as a person, as a hmm. Christ follower, as a mother. Hmm. Um, so maybe that doesn't feel very encouraging, but we do say we need to name things to tame them. Yeah. And by naming and feeling that pain, I can also give it to the father and, and there's a, there's an act of worship in that, right? There's an act of worship as I say, but Lord, you are worthy. You are yeah. worthy of all of this, even when it is so hard and so painful. Yeah. So, um, 
we will be called irresponsible. And as Neil and I have been called irresponsible for doing what we did, uh, there is wisdom in not taking teenagers to dangerous places. Hmm. Um, it's especially hard on teenagers. Um, the anecdotal evidence is that it is unwise and that hmm. uh, we were, um, we had many kids, many teenagers in the youth group in Kabul. And so the psychologists and parents uh, of those people who are now in their 20s, there's higher rates of depression and anxiety that, that those wow. adults have to work through. So there's not a lot of scholarly validated research on that. Um, but overall, we'd say, you know, it's easier to raise little children in dangerous areas and then uh, leave because hmm. we are called to be parents, right? And to um, give life to these these kids that he entrusted to us. Right. And that life includes psychological life yeah. and yeah. physical life. So yeah. yeah, it's a hard topic. Yeah. Um, and as you yeah. said, there's no easy answers and it's not a, and if it, those easy answers, I think somebody probably would already gave those easy answers. And um, at the same time, I think the encouragement is, is, you know, that recognizing, I, I think when I went to the field, I thought, I don't know, my Western church idea was, the the enemy was there to make my life a little bit uncomfortable and it, but i didn't realize as you said he comes to kill steal and destroy and that there is a plan there is a plan to attack and he's not a gentleman as you said so he's not going to take it easy on our families and just by naming that and, and letting people know that it, they're not unique because i think sometimes the enemy isolates and he wants people to think you're the only one suffering in this way or it's only because you're weak or you're immature or whatever he would yeah cause on to people. So I think it's an encouragement just to, just to state it. So anyway, just wanted to ask you one question about inviting, um, inviting, welcoming, encouraging, empowering women to be involved in this conversation. In my experience in, in, in the work that we do, a lot of times it's men that seem to be driving this and speaking, but I think we miss such a vital component and such wisdom and insight by not encouraging, empowering women to be involved in this conversation. Could you just share a little bit about how we could do that? Sure. Well, first, I just want to say that um, God has raised up um, men and women, but predominantly men, because those are the majority of what makes up military and police globally. All right. So God has raised up men around the world who are now retired from various security and military endeavors, and they're serving the body by training and security. So it's understandable that it's predominantly men in the security world and thinking and discussing risk issues, right? And so, yes, I do feel a little bit like a unicorn being it. And I came into this as an academic writing a dissertation in a book, but also field experience of living through dangerous areas for 10 years. And I have had um, security, the three-day security training. So, um, in my research, what I discovered, what I stumbled across is there's a wealth of validated research from the secular psychologists that if you do risk assessment and you only have white men in the room, your risk assessment is actually going to underestimate the risk. And it has to do with the worldview that they come from this. So this is not attacking men or this is not attacking a race issue. All right. Right. What the research shows is you will get a much better decision and picture of reality and how your team is doing. If you will invite 
a different, a, a wider variety of voices yeah. into the risk discussion. So for sure, we would say if you have a, a, a team, a, a risk assessment team or a crisis management team, it would be wise. Yeah. You'll have a better input and decisions if you have an, a woman yeah. and anybody who might be from another culture that's not from the, um, you know, just you don't want a homogeneous culture group yeah. on the risk committee or the crisis committee yeah. that's managing that. So as yeah. much as you can invite a wide variety of voices in, you'll have a better assessment. And so, Aaron, I appreciate you inviting me. And the men that have invited me to speak through the risk management network and uh, just to give input in various places, it, it has on it has given me confidence to yeah. speak up more. Yeah. And um and that's worthwhile for the discussion and the input we get as brothers and sisters as we put Christ's family on display. For sure. Well, that speaks to Islamic cultures yeah, that yeah. women stay separate, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I am growing in confidence, but it has been hard because I am, uh, the recent meetings, there was about eight women in the room of 100 men. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> um, it's, well, I appreciate I appreciate your courage and um, and I appreciate your voice and um, yeah, it just is encouragement to me to see and to hear. And I, the other thing is, and I am also an academic. I love that you base things on research, and so it's not <laughs> you. You have your. We can all have opinions. Um, at the same time, you you have your opinions and you base it on the research, which I think adds a lot of validity to it. And um, from an academic side, so thanks so much for answering. That <laughs> You're question. welcome, Anna. It has been a joy. Um, to learn from you and um, challenge us. And I'm looking forward to the second book and hopefully you'll um, be willing to come back on the podcast and have another interview about that. And, um, but would you sure. pray for us today that God would use um, the wisdom and insight that you've shared and pray for those that are in a place that they're, they're asking great questions and they're wanting to hear God's voice in a time such as we live in. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I thank you first off that the internet worked through this whole interview and uh, we didn't get cut off. Lord, we know that um, there's greater persecution of Christians around the world right now than at any other time. We know there, there are many things legitimately to, uh, that, that cause fear within us. But Lord, we just ask that even this interview would strengthen people in their inner being, that they will be firm and resolve to continue to serve you and obey you no matter what. We know that you are faithful. We know that you give the grace that is needed in the moment. We know that you are constantly speaking and watching and caring for your people, even as they go through suffering, Lord. And so I just ask even today that in my words of reminder, in Aaron's words of sharing and his vulnerability and authenticity of what he's learned, that that would be an encouragement to people that they're not alone, that they're not weak and immature, as he said, but that that we're each on our journey uh, calling to obey you in the places that we are and that um, that you would just give, give those listening um, an immediate picture of what perseverance and endurance looks like for them today in this moment. And we just, we ask for these things for your body around the world in your name. Amen. Amen. talking about theology of risk um yeah could you just share with us about the what a theology of risk would look like the components of it and as i shared 
um, off off the recording is a lot of times my experience is organizations will have one, but the workers on the field don't know what it is, don't know what it says or where to find it. So could you just share a little bit about uh, about theology of risk and why it's so important? Sure. Well, just to give a brief kind of foundation of why this has been so hard is because Hebrew does not have the word risk in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> so all we have are stories. Yeah. And in in the New Testament, so if you look at 20 trans, English translations, they will have only three places where they use the word risk. Hmm. So then when you go to the Greek for those words, you find three different Greek words. Okay. Hmm. So from those three Greek words, we can have three essentials to any theology of risk, three things that make up a theology of risk. So the first one is paradidomy. Mm -hmm. It's used in Acts 15 when the church leaders need to to choose men to go and do a specific task, men who would risk their lives, right? So that that word paradidomy means to give over, to give over your life, to give over your hands, to be bound, and um, it, it has to do with choosing who hmm. was chosen for the risk, which you heard me mention yeah. earlier. Secondly, you have in Philippians, you have this Greek word parabolusomenos. Oh, wow, that's a, big, that's a mouthful. <laughs> and this word Paul made up. It's hmm. not found anywhere else. And it's not found until like a second century Stella of some type. So it's a gambling word. And it describes what Epaphroditus did. He gambled his life in service to Christ and Paul by going to Paul. And in Philippians 4, Paul then says what Epaphroditus did was an act of worship because it was a Mm. fragrant offering. And that's an act of worship of of volition. We do. The the Lord doesn't demand it. And so we have choosing an acts and we have an act of worship and risk. How is the Lord leading me to worship him in this risk situation or if I'm leaving the risk situation? And then the third one is Romans 16, and Paul describes what Christian Aquila did as hypotithemy, a risking their lives, which the meaning behind that in the Greek is that they literally laid their necks on the chopping block, Hmm. all right, and they left them there, Hmm. and they risked their lives. And so we say, what is the foundation that they're basing their lives on, that they're putting their necks on the line for? And that's Jesus Christ, the gospel, Hmm. the good news that he came and that he rescued us out of our place of shame and fear and um, guilt, and that he is worthy because yeah. of his resurrection and because of who he is, and he's worthy of that. And so we have these three elements of a theology of risk, and you can look at any story in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and you'll find these three elements. The reason why it's so confusing is most, and I've looked at the top, I've looked at 10 theology of risk statements from major mission organizations in America, that was six years ago. So things have probably changed, but they're very anecdotal and they quote lots of verses and they're hard to nail down. So I would encourage um, a much more concise theology of risk based on those three elements, based on the Greek. Good word. Good word. 